Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, this is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And we're back for another exciting week. Um, exciting in multiple ways, I guess, is one way to put it, given our <laughs> lives these days. Um, how are you, Kira? What's, what's up in your world? And you can also just say it's the same, because that's It is the thing. same. It is exactly the same. <laughs> You know, it's, I keep hearing it referred to, there's different words now to describe this, this ride that we're on. The Corona Coaster is the one I've been hearing lately, which sounds kind of glib, but it's a thing, you know, there's, because everybody's moods are up and down. And I find that's true about so many things, including, you know, that ride between like optimism and pessimism about all of this. There's a lot of that, of all of that going around right now. Yeah, I was just talking to my partner last night about how I feel a little, it, it's difficult for us because we're sort of disconnected from the roller coaster a bit, the way that we're existing these days. We, <laughs> we, our lives wouldn't really change that much if all of the shelter in place orders were to be lifted because we're both basically working on projects that sort of, you know, bolt us to our seats all day in our home mm-hmm. uh, anyway. But I was just thinking about all of the you know, restaurant workers and owners here in California who had just yeah. gotten to get back Figured into it out, and then now they have to go back, and just like the emotional roller coaster of that, it must just be a lot. Um, yeah. So yeah, if you're somebody that is dealing with them, those kinds of, you know, like profound life circumstance shifts all the time, um, then our, you know, our hearts go out to you. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, it's incredible. It really is. I mean, I don't know, a lot of people have learned to adapt quickly and adapt again and adapt again during this process, but it is ask, it it takes a ton of psychic energy to keep doing that. Yeah. Um, And I think that's what's really happening now. We're just in this sort of ongoing moving cycle where there's really, and of course, there being no clear end does not really help. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if, exactly. if we knew if we knew it were finite, I think our, our ability to motivate and process through that would be better. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. Um, but you know, it's all I think, I think the thing that I keep being reminded of the fact that human beings have gone through moments like this, we haven't always all gone through it together. But right. uh, you know, that, right. that this is something we know how to do. We just haven't uh, many of us haven't done it before. <laughs> right. There are precedents. Yeah. Um, it's, it's true. It's a lot. Have you read anything interesting, anything good that's going on that you, that you're excited about? Well, on the optimism, optimism side, maybe not. <laughs> There's a lot of, I was thinking right. about things I could quote and most of them are just not, so they're they're not on the on the upside part. They're on the downside part. You know, there's there was a a really interesting article in the Times recently. Deb Perlman, her the sort of salient quote from that is, "Let me say the quiet part loud. In the COVID nineteen economy, you're allowed a kid or a job." Which you know that's and that's to your point about 
you know, we are all in this together, but each person's experience and that whatever their roller coaster looks like is so different from others. And I too, am, you know, I work at home. I worked at home before this. So like you, I'm experiencing these waves in the regulations in different ways. They don't really impact my day-to-day -day existence right now. But of course, for me, the school game is going to be a fun one for the next year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's yeah. that. But everybody has their different, you know, that's the thing. The complexion of what that looks like is, is different for each group of people, depending where they sit in the economy and what their family situations are and all those things. I was yeah. reading just a recently a piece about, um, it was a Forbes article, but it's about the Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivette Carnet book, The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. I don't know if you've seen that book. It's been out for a little while. And it's a great book. It's positive. It's got these three big approaches, including, of course, radical optimism, which we all need more of. Um, and then 10 specific things to do, including building gender equity, which of course helps everyone in all economies at any given time. Um, and I feel sort of responsible to be optimistic because of that kind of thing. We need that energy in this moment. But then there's the whole being disappointed about how our culture, American culture in particular, has responded to COVID and what that looks like now, especially mm -hmm. if you think about it as a dress rehearsal for climate right? That's the part that's really disturbing. Yeah, totally. Slide back to defensive pessimism. So, but we can't have yeah. that. We need the energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've actually, it's been a, it's been a week of um, learning optimism on the climate front for me as well. Um, Biden just released his new climate plan, sort of platform for his yes. uh, campaign. And I've been reading a lot of people reacting to it. And generally, a lot of people are saying this is progress. This is, yes. they are optimistic about the idea that a, you know, a, a major party candidate has a progressive climate action plan. Um, I saw Bernie Sanders on the news yesterday talking about it. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, it's the kind of stuff you would expect Bernie Sanders to say, like, we still have a long way to go, but this, but this is progress. Um, yes. it, you know, a lot of people are really pointing that out. And I, I'm in the habit now of reading all of the documents that people release that are essentially climate action plans or green stimulus plans or other things of that nature. And so I read it uh, yesterday and mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah, it, there's some cool stuff in there. Um, I, I really, was excited to hear what he had to say about buildings and particularly the thing I'm excited about, which we don't see a lot in these climate action plans is uh, national standards for the existing building performance uh, realm. So energy performance of existing buildings, they're actually being a standard that says buildings have to operate this way. Um, I think that's huge and would be incredible. And it's one of the things I'm hoping to see. So, right. Um, See, it would make a big difference very quickly. It really yeah. would. Yeah, it would. I mean, there's all sorts of extremely important equity matters to discuss in that realm. But I think um, that that is, in fact, part of the point of a standard like that is that a lot of low income people and people of color have a higher energy burden yes. uh, than uh, than white people. So it, it starts to, you know, if we're tackling that problem, it helps people in a variety of ways not to mention health and all the other mm -hmm. things. So yeah, it was kind of a, you know, I mean, ultimately, I still think it's 
it's more of a dialogue, um, these, these plans, uh, than they are actual, you know, like, sure. um, marching orders for anyone. Um, but I, I think it's great. I, I, and I'm happy to see that climate got at least a little bit of time on apparently all of the major news networks, um, yesterday. So that's absolutely, uh, we'll see where it goes, but it's getting me at least more, you know, energetic about the election season. So good. That's good. great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, oh, well, I guess, I, I don't know. I was thinking, should I self promote this blog that I wrote? I, I will. Yes, I will you should. Sorry. I should have done it for you. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, I honestly like, but I guess if you're listening to the podcast, you might be interested in what Kira and I think about. Uh, so I will say that I'm starting to publish a a series, which is just on Medium, and um, but I posted on LinkedIn about all of my thoughts and ideas that relate to climate action policy, uh, specifically for buildings, because I've learned that there are not a lot of buildings voices weighing in on uh, climate policy at that level. Um, yeah, well, maybe policy is the wrong word, climate platforms and plans and visionary statements and such. Um, so I'm trying to add my voice there and you can read the stuff if you look for me on Medium or LinkedIn. Or and I really enjoyed the one this week, Lindsay. Um, I think the way you're able to distill that, certainly for this reader, I so appreciated sort okay. of seeing reference to all those different pieces and then the job lens that you were using was really, really valuable. Yeah, I was, I was really excited to get that one out first about jobs. Yeah. And it was also really great. A lot of the people that responded to the post were talking about various training and education programs that exist out there uh, for people who um, can get into the building industry. So it was fun to hear about some of the programs that I didn't know about that are in the works. And yep. um, one of my favorite programs is going virtual, which is super exciting. So yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's nice to get it out there. I feel like it does kind of it spurs conversation in a nice way. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of education, uh, I'm so uh, profoundly excited for our guest for today, uh, Gail Brager. Hi, Gail. Hello, Lindsay and Kira. Uh, um, we're, we're so lucky to have Gail. So Gail, um, for those that don't know, Gail's a professor of architecture at UC Berkeley, the associate director of the Center for the Built Environment, which is a research center there that focuses on improving the performance of buildings. But ultimately and above all, I am excited because Gail is my mentor in many ways and kind of like a second mom and uh, <laughs> someone that I have learned so much from and that many people have learned so much from in their careers. Um, so it's, it's very special for me to have you on the podcast, Gail. I'm so excited. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Oh, well, it is so great to be here. And I've really been enjoying listening to the other podcasts. I think you are both doing a great job in creating this wonderful resource for people. So thank you both for that. And I'm excited about your new blog, Lindsay. I'm delighted you plugged it and I look forward to checking it out. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. I mean, I just, you know, before we start asking you questions, I think one of the things that that I want listeners to kind of know about you that is so important and that is influential, I think, for this podcast is that you have an incredible ability to sort of to nurture women leaders and and just 
the network of women um, working together in our industry. Um, so it's very much, I think, um, you, you know, you have a, you have some role in this podcast for sure. Um, but it's also just, it's a fun opportunity for us to focus on someone who I feel like focuses on other people a lot. <laughs> so this is going to be nice. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Well, um, Gail, to get started, I want to, well, let me just also say that, so I met Gail, it's got to be, well, let's not date that too much. Back when I was researching Women in Green, I think is the first time I really got to talk to Gail at length. And just ever since that time, so um, enamored with the role that you have in sort of cultivating this community. So I'm really excited you're joining us. And I think we should start by having you just tell us a little bit about your career, how you got started working with buildings and really what your path has been. Thank you. Well, I guess it's a bit of a convoluted path. I, I think um, I think it started as a confluence of three things without initially knowing where they might all lead. I had very strong social values. I think a lot from my mom who was a civil rights leader. So I grew up with that. A strong environmental values like so many of our listeners and speakers from our love of nature. And also a strong affinity for math, science and engineering. I knew I loved it. I was frankly pretty good at it. I'm not sure why, but I also had no idea what to do with it. So I think the main takeaway is that my path was one of serendipity rather than a grand plan. I, I was truly fortunate. I met people who opened doors for me, but I guess I also had to be very curious and tenacious in doing what it took to meet those people, walk through those doors, and work hard to make good impressions, which would then lead to more opportunities. And along the way, I recognized pretty early on, I think, the importance of collaboration, that no one succeeds alone. And as a woman in the very male-dominated field of engineering, I was extremely fortunate to have some amazing and supportive male mentors along the way. And frankly, I wouldn't be here without them. Well, maybe we can talk, You maybe you can give us some specific examples of either people or moments that influenced your thinking. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I think one of the first ones was when I got my first job as a graduate student in engineering at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab with the late Don Elmer. And he was the first person since my mom where I saw someone being really passionate about their work. Who, And he helped me discover that some of my early environmental interests in solar were actually one small part of this larger field of building science, which blended the technical and environmental interests I had. I was given an opportunity to teach and I got immediately hooked. I knew I wanted to be an educator, but while I loved the knowledge base of engineering, I have to say it wasn't really an inspiring educational environment for me in terms of its applications or its pedagogical methods. And then I met Ed Ahrens, who I cannot say enough about in terms of the doors he opened for me. I will be forever grateful. And he helped me discover architecture as both a discipline and an academic environment that was creative and blended everything I was looking for. But going from engineering to architecture was not easy. I was a real black sheep. And I had the fortune to work with Chris Benton, a brilliant educator who showed me how to teach in this very different academic environment from the one 
I had and the importance of visual communication and interactive experiential learning. I had the mentorship of Richard Dedeer in Sydney, one of my closest colleagues, who taught me that some of the best collaborators are those with whom you have shared values and goals, but complementary skills. And I should probably also give a shout out to ASHRAE as the first organization I got involved with, which taught me the importance of seeking opportunities for leadership and mm. not worrying if you're the only woman in the room. And I really learned through my work there that I had to learn that if you speak with confidence and respect for others' voices and listen to them, then people will listen to you. Oh, that's so interesting, Gail, um, the, the ASHRAE example um, and learning your footing in that context. But it also really sounds like the passion for, there's a deep passion for being an educator. Can you talk a little bit about what it is you like about that experience and that, I mean, obviously you're sticking with it. So you, oh, there's something you love yeah, they're there. <laughs> they're going to have a hard time getting rid of me. I, I think I have the best job in the world. I do. I feel like I'm living Ray Bradbury's quote, love what you do and do what you love. Um, every day is a new adventure. I'm always learning. It's very intellectually stimulating and humbling at the same time, which I think is a challenging but gratifying combination. And of course, the students are just one part of being an educator, but they're the best part. I, I love feeling like I'm just a drop that's going to create even larger ripples. I love teaching and mentoring future generations and watching them grow. I, I love thinking about new ways to explain things, create interactive exercises for students to learn by doing. I love watching those aha moments they experience. It's fantastic. But beyond the students, being at UC Berkeley is a pretty incredible environment where I can engage with bright, motivated, value-driven people from different disciplines. Uh, in addition to my core colleagues, there's always a rotating network of interesting people who come through my orbit. And without a doubt, a huge part of why I love my work is my research group, the Center for the Built Environment, which is truly my professional family. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about CBE and, and what you do there? Sure. So CBE, the Center for the Built Environment, we're, we're a consortium of researchers at UC Berkeley and industry partners. And we currently have about 52 partners who represent a diverse set of stakeholders in the building industry. They include architects, engineers, contractors, manufacturers, um, utilities, large business owners, government organizations, and a lot of them are leading companies from um, both, both locally and global A&E firms and also smaller firms across North America. And our work is focused on creating buildings that are good for the planet and for people. So we focus on energy efficiency, indoor environmental quality, and people's comfort, health, and well-being. Mm -hmm. And we think it's really important that this research about energy and indoor environment and people's response all go hand in hand to create transformational change in the building industry. So at a high level, some examples of the kinds of research we do um, or tools we develop, we, 
We do research on advanced HVAC systems like underfloor air distribution, radiant, mixed mode. We do a lot of work on personal comfort systems, such as our heated and cooled chairs, which are uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Get a lot of, a uh, lot, lot of uh, raised eyebrows with that one. We do a lot of research on the role of air movement on comfort and integrating fans and HVAC systems. And we also develop a lot of tools that people can use in the industry. So tools for the design of UFAD radiant systems, ceiling fans. We've created various thermal comfort tools for predicting the effects of the indoor environment on comfort, for visualizing data from a large global database of thermal comfort field studies. These tools that can help practitioners make informed decisions about design and operation of buildings. And we've also developed an occupant survey toolkit that a lot of practitioners use to allow them to get feedback um, from the occupant's perspective about the indoor environmental quality in their buildings. I, uh, I just want to like chime in to say that um, one of the things that I love so much about being at the CBE was that you could tell that everyone was so passionate about the work every day, you know, like this, it's a group of people that I just have to sort of echo and say it's more as a more neutral observer is just mm-hmm. this incredible group of human beings um, who clearly, you know, have this like profound respect for each other's work. And, um, and, and I, sometimes I think it actually has something to do with the fact that the one of the things that, at least from my perspective, separates the CBE from other types of programs like this, and when I was looking at graduate schools, this was the thing that stood out most, is that it's very human-centered in the research. That it, it's not, it's, there, there are many uh, ways to study buildings that are primarily about optimizing the building itself, and that doesn't really have to engage in the sometimes gnarly realm of humans. And the thing I think it just is so fun to watch about the CBE is like, I mean, even down to like the, you know, the mannequins and things like there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of gnarliness that comes in when you start dealing with the human body. Um, (laughs) And it's a very fun place to be that for that reason. Um, But I I just wanted to to say uh, for people that haven't experienced the research or seen it, I I hope you can look it up and, and just get a, a flavor for things or you know if you're someone thinking about graduate school and all of that and and that human-centered aspect of buildings really matters to you I think CBE is at the top of a of, the, of its class in that way. Well, so thank, I, thanks Lindsay and that's one of the things we think is is unique about what we do because we are trying to combine the physical building performance and the BTU counting and the, and the energy and the carbon with the human performance mm-hmm. and doing that, but in our, in our lab studies, in our field work through simulation and really using diverse modes of inquiry as well. Well, and I think the center is really held in high esteem by many people in the industry, not just because of the amazing tools that you've created that so many practices use, um, but also because of your emphasis um, on bridging academia and, the, and practice the profession. So I thought maybe, could you talk a little bit about why that is important to, to do, why that model works and is, is important? Sure. I think, um, I think it's really important to do that bridging between research and the profession. I think the model benefits 
both researchers and practitioners. I wish we had more of it. Um, so the reasons why I think it's important is, well, first, the, the practitioners, they help support our, our research, but beyond their financial support, I think it's really important to get their perspectives because it helps keep our research relevant and timely. We learn so much from our partners about the cutting edge of practice, what they're learning, what challenges they're having, and how we can help improve building performance through their partnership. And I think it's also um, a benefit to them in that it's a really rare opportunity for industry members to be able to shape the direction of research. But by doing it through this partnership, it's being done in a really transparent form where we have multiple and diverse partners. There's a lot of checks and balances. It's being done in a university setting that requires everything remain in the public domain. So I think the model avoids both the real and perceived problems of potential bias or serving only proprietary interests. I think that uh, this kind of model helps broaden knowledge that partners can use to serve their customers and clients. And it's, and it's essentially accelerating the rate at which research gets into practice. Mm -hmm. It reduces the time that new research findings and technology can be put into practice. I think too often researchers are writing publications and presenting at conferences to other researchers, and we're just talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And we really need to be um, talking outside of academia and have practitioners and researchers talk to each other. So I think one of the really wonderful things that, that we're, we're known for is that I think we've really created a culture of very open exchange of information for the common good, where partners can come and they can network and they can learn from each other, not just from us. Mm -hmm. They can collaborate with each other outside of projects. So it's in a very non-competitive setting. Mm -hmm. They can develop business connections within, um, within the network. And many of them actually collaborate directly in our research, which is really fun for them to be able to do something that's different than their norm. It's a great model, and it really has so many lessons for the profession much more broadly, really the whole in the whole sector, frankly, that kind of cross-disciplinary and just more open um, interaction. It's really, it's really great. But I want to shift gears just a little bit um, beyond the center. We could talk about the center for a long time. Um, and just a little bit more macro. So to ask about really what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life, be it more personal or professional side of that. Wow. Well, <laughs> I've been at this a long time. <laughs> so I, th I think I'll answer that on a couple different levels. One, um, one specifically for my research. And without going into a lot of detail, my most important research has been the development of the adaptive thermal comfort model, which some listeners might be familiar with. It was incorporated into ASHRAE standard 55. And what this is, is a model that instead of being done in a, in a controlled laboratory setting, is based on a global database of thermal comfort field studies done by researchers around the world. And it basically shows that in naturally ventilated buildings, people not just tolerate, but actually prefer a wide range of conditions compared to the more centrally controlled air conditioned buildings where people frankly get, a, a, get addicted to air conditioning 
and the, the relatively narrow set points that we maintain in these buildings. And in naturally ventilated buildings, people actually prefer a wider range of conditions that follow the rhythms of the outdoor climate. And um, in addition to the research, I think what I'm proud of is the ability to get it incorporated into the standards. Mm -hmm. And that requires a lot of um, political work in a lot of ways. It's about working with the committees, which are mostly a male dominated group of engineers. And it was one of the more radical changes that the ASHRAE comfort standard had seen to be able to acknowledge that no, not all people feel the same way in all buildings and all climates all the time. And I think people kind of got that with common sense, mm -hmm. but you needed the data to be able to say, no, this is how we can verify that, that that's not true and how we can turn it into a standard. And that's really important because the standards have been what have enabled architects and engineers to more easily design naturally con ventilated commercial buildings. And so I, th I think that would be one of my uh, kind of legacy contributions in terms of research. Mm -hmm. But I would say that more generally, I think my greater contributions have been my roles as a mentor and a community builder. And I really appreciated both Lindsay and Kira, how you spoke to that because in the beginning, because that is, I think the larger hat that I wear, I think, um, I think I'm really good at getting things done, but doing it by building consensus, by recognizing and building on people's strengths, leading with an attitude of gratitude and appreciation of others, being inclusive and empathetic to others' contributions. Uh, Lindsay, thank you for calling me Aunt Gail. Some of my students do call me that or a second mom. I've also been affectionately referred to by some of my colleagues as Mama Bear. I'm very protective of my students and colleagues and just I see my higher purpose to support them in any way I can. And a, a lot of this way of doing might be characterized by some as, as feminine leadership skills, but however one labels them, I think they're really important skills that both women and men can use. And um, I, I'm proud of being a role model to both men and women about how to lead. And I, I mentioned earlier that I love being a mentor to students. So I would also say some of my proudest or most rewarding moments have been when I see them years later at a conference and they come running up to me and saying how my class changed their life or helped them identify a career direction. And that's just incredibly rewarding. Those are some of my happiest moments. As well they should be. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people out there, I'm sure that have that feeling about you. And, and I mean, it's, you know, I guess part of what I've observed that is, is has been so helpful is that, that there is sort of a balance between just being supportive and being and, and having high aspirations and, and you manage that very well as a as a mentor you know like I, I, th I think that's something that we all seek in mentorship is people who support us but who still kind of like I'll never forget the time when I was trying to finish my PhD which I did not finish and uh, uh, and you asked me something along the lines of I'm not going to guilt you because I don't think that will work, but what will work 
as a method for getting you to, to feel, you know, continuously sort of supported and also, uh, you know, like, I don't, yeah, I guess supported by, <laughs> uh, by, by you in like, in getting, in getting something challenging done. And I just appreciated the fact that you were like, what is the psychological manipulation that will work for you, for you <laughs> from here to there, from point A to point B? Um, and it was just, it was like the most thoughtful and empathetic thing to ask somebody. And I remember thinking like, oh man, this is, because yeah, guilt really doesn't work on me. And I totally like, you know, it, it makes me kind of withdraw. And so you had somehow figured that out. And anyway, it was uh well, and I also remember, Lindsay, that we all got on the same page that you didn't really need to finish. Having those letters after your name were not as important as the education you got along the way. So finishing didn't matter. It was the journey that mattered. And you have been doing the most amazing things afterwards. And you are, you, you just epitomize this this wonderful experience, my favorite experience of being an educator and just watching my students grow and do things even more amazing than what I'm doing and changing the world in their own unique ways. And there's nothing more satisfying. So you are a great example of that, Lindsay. Well, thank you. That's once again, turning it back to someone else, Gail. I see what you're trying to do there and I'm gonna <laughs> turn it right back to you and ask you about what you're working on right now, because um, we want the listeners to know about it. I am so excited about what I'm working on right now. I will say that after a career of writing, I think on the order of 100 scientific journal papers, I am doing what I thought I would never do, and that is writing my first book. So I would love to tell people about this. I am co-writing it with Mark Decay, who um, is from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and some of the listeners might know him as the author of Sun, Wind, and Light and um, Integral Sustainable Design. We just signed a contract with Island Press, so this is really going to happen. And the uh, working title of the book is The Feeling of Form and Architecture of Sensory Variability. And essentially, it's about how to design for rich, multi-sensory experience in buildings to support people's health and well-being. And it's bridging perspectives from architecture, building science, and health sciences, and translating them into architectural design strategies. So it's really being written with a professional audience in mind. And it, it uses this idea of experiential richness as, as the hook for creating spaces that affect health and well-being, but by doing it, through strong connections to climate and to nature, it will also impact building performance by reducing energy and carbon. But that hasn't been the motivator by itself as much as we hoped it would be. So we are hoping that this hook of experiential delight, if I can borrow from uh, Lisa Heshong's term of thermal delight, uh, will go much further in getting people to think about the indoor environment, both in terms of making stronger connections to nature, reducing energy, but mostly it's about experience. And it's about viewing health, not just as the absence of disease, which is important, but not inspirational. It's about going beyond reducing the negative, instead focusing on enhancing the positive 
experiences we can have in buildings. I'm so excited um, about the book in every way. And I, and one of the things I am particularly excited about, and I'm hoping you could talk to us a bit about is, um, is sort of designing for diversity. It's one of the things that I really love about your work on adaptive comfort um, and also what it sounds like this book is about. It's, it's, it's that you're always making this point that people need different things or like different things. Um, and design doesn't always do a great job of embracing that diversity of preference. And so I'm wondering if you're, you can talk a bit about how the book tackles that point. Does it, does it, um, does it make that point explicitly or is it sort of implicit in the way the book, um, you know, folds out? Oh, that's, that's a great question, Lindsay. Um, I think a fundamental premise of the book is emphasizing the notion of personal choice and personal control in, in figuring out how to design spaces to give people lots of opportunities for how we operate and occupy our buildings. Because you're right, we are all so different. And a huge problem in buildings today is that we intentionally design for experiential monotony, for bland or neutral conditions that are uniform overall space, static overall time. That's the goal. And we're and in doing so, we're saying, all right, well, I guess we have to design for the average person. And that's a little bit like saying, okay, well, the average women's shoe size is seven and a half. So let's only make shoes in size seven and a half. Can you imagine the protest that women would have if that happened? So oh we have to design buildings for the variety of individual preferences and needs and sensitivities and abilities and, and we need to do that across a lot of different domains, but this one is, is really focusing on that in terms of our senses, the thermal, the lighting, the acoustic, the olfactory environments. We all have different sensitivities and preferences for, for these kinds of um, experiences. And I, I would also say another way in which I hope the book will address diversity is what I like to call um, sensory equity. I think that it's really important that these moments of experiential delight we're trying to create can, these moments can be had in large and small ways and be available to everyone. So the book is being organized in terms of what we call schemas, which are these four page spreads that each take an idea of an experience and explains the phenomena and the potential experiential response along with compelling precedents, design guidelines, research evidence. But for the precedents, we're intentionally avoiding having case studies of only high-end, one-off, amazing architectural projects that maybe only com elite communities can experience. And that's a lot of the photographs that we see in the architectural magazines and books. So yes, we'll have some of those, but we also want to complement those with images from affordable housing and community centers and, and low-income neighborhoods and places where you can still have these um, moments of experiential delight without the high investment. 
Yeah, um, I, I'm excited about that. And I appreciate that you're putting time and effort into doing that because it is true. That tends to be a thing that happens in, in architectural books and, and just the stories that we tell ourselves about architecture, right? It's, sort of, it's a big deal. Um, okay, so last question sort of in the research realm. I'm curious about what frontiers of research you are excited about these days, um, where, you know, sort of where our industry is headed, where do we need to fill gaps just in general and on the research front, what would you like to see more of? Well, I, I think, again, starting with this notion that we want to design and operate buildings, both that are good for people and the planet, I think we need to have a shift in how we think about people-based rather than space-based conditioning strategies. So where we have more personal control, we have more air movement, we have integrated systems so that you can broaden the set points in buildings, which provide one of the greatest opportunities for energy reduction, but by doing it in a way that gives people more autonomy to create and control their own personal environments. Um, I mentioned Enhancing the positive, not just reducing the negative. I think that has to be not just a mindset for practitioners and standards, but we need more research. Most of our research just asks questions that are about finding the limits of discomfort rather than enhancing um, mm. the, the pleasure and delight. And I think we need to get out of our silos. We need to expand the interdisciplinary nature of our research and I think we also need to have a much greater focus on existing buildings, not just new buildings, which also goes hand in hand with thinking about how we can improve building operation, not just the design of new buildings. Right. I think you just kind of segged perfectly into, I was going to ask a little bit more about industry in general and where we should be focusing our attention next and what things we should be working on doing better. Well, that a lot of the things that we need to do in research then have to get translated to practice. Yep. So I think in industry, we need to create buildings where there is less rigorous control and more personal autonomy. I think we need to design and operate buildings that embrace more variable environments, greater diversity of sensory experiences, greater connection to climate and nature. And I think we need to do all of that with concerns for equity. We need to affect all buildings for all people, not just the elite award-winning buildings. We need to engage more people in the field. Um, architects focused on environmental sustainability is frankly still a very white field. And I think getting more diversity of people will hopefully affect a greater diversity of the types of projects that get created. And I think we also just need to figure out how to move faster. I think mm -hmm. we were all blown away at how quickly shelter in place <laughs> happened across the world. When people started dying, we recognized the health crisis and people acted quickly. I don't know what it's going to take for people to see the climate crisis in the same way, but we need to see it because the, the impact is going to be even more profound and we need to act quickly. That is a beautiful place for us to end. But before we end, I want to <laughs> just ask you one last question about who you're inspired by. Um, we like to end on that front. And so we're going to still end there. 
today, um, even though honestly acting quickly sounds like a like everybody just put down your computers and let's go do this stuff. Um, but so yeah, tell us in, in closing, who inspires you uh, these days? Wow. Well, I've been at this for a while, so my inspiration has come from so many different places. But in the spirit of this podcast, I'm going to focus on the women who inspire me. And uh, I, I wear many different hats. So a, as an educator, I've got to call out Susan Ubelodi, who I think is just the best of the best. She's an extraordinary educator and unique visionary. Uh, Vivian Loftness at Carnegie Mellon has also been a role model for so many of us in education. These days, because of uh, my book, I'm also incredibly inspired by authors of other books about sensory experience and whose footsteps I'm trying to follow. So Judy Heerwagen, Lisa Heshong, Barbara Irwine, I'm constantly pulling out your books, fine ladies, and finding inspiration in them. So thank you for that. Uh, in my research world, uh, of course, I'm inspired by all of my CBE research colleagues, but I also just want to give a general shout out to the women leaders of CBE partners who regularly come to meetings and are engaged and contribute and really get the importance of bridging research to practice. Um, Pauline Souza from WRNS, Billy Faircloth from Kieran Timberlake are a couple of, of just so many. Uh, the women leaders in the Bay Area who have been in my life for so many years, and I always look forward to seeing them at our Green Goddess gatherings. I cannot name them all because I know I'll miss important ones, but if you're listening, you know who you are, and I adore you. But more than anything, my greatest inspiration is the youth. And Many speakers on your podcast have mentioned Greta, who is undeniably amazing. But I have to say, I'm even more inspired by the collective youth community. In, in my world, I've been so privileged for the last 35 plus years to work with young people. And I find them inspiring on almost a daily basis. They are inherently interdisciplinary in their interests. They're breaking down silos faster than any of us old farts can do. They are driven by making the world a better place. And in spite of all the craziness and uncertainty we're looking at right now, they remain passionate and hopeful. They are advocates, they organize, they look out for each other. They challenge us to rise up and think differently. And whether it's my students, or I have to say my own two kids who are in their 20s, Adam and Carolyn, who constantly amaze and inspire me, I feel so fortunate to be surrounded by this demographic. They keep me young, they inspire, educate, and empower me, and they definitely keep me hopeful for the future. That is beautiful, and also a good note to end on. I think, you know, I was saying to you, I do feel like you, you are kept young. And so it's such an inspirational thing to watch, like, in, in every way, the, the philosophy that you bring to life, it feels Absolutely. like for, for so many people, I think, as they get older, they, they, uh, they narrow the window of possibility and what the world can offer. And you're a great example to us all of what it looks like when that 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 doesn't have to happen. So thank you for being with us. It's been such an honor. 
Well, thank you. I am so grateful for this opportunity and I'm honored to be among the amazing women you have been interviewing and I will continue to look forward to listening. Thanks, Gail. That's wonderful. Um, well, yeah, with that, uh, that's it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe. We'll see you next week.